Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar, a serial novel by Chris Thompson, narrated by Chris Thompson. Chapter 7. America's Next Top Bottom. As time passed, I began to notice changes in my eating habits. Firstly, I was eating less and less. And secondly, I found I was unable to eat in front of people. In my apartment, I would wait till my roommates went out, scurry into the kitchen like a cockroach and speedily boil some pasta. I'd gobble it down, scarcely stopping to chew, clean the dishes and withdraw, ensuring there was no trace left of my time in the kitchen or my need to eat. Whilst I was eating, the slightest noise from outside and I'd freeze. A mangy wide-eyed fox caught at a dumpster. I'd tiptoe over to the trash can and hover my plate above the garbage, ready to dispose of my food if my roommates returned. Eventually, I would eat standing up out the saucepan and I would bury my leftovers in the trash, lifting up what was already in there and hiding all evidence of my hunger beneath it. If my roommates asked me what I'd eaten for dinner, I'd lie and invent a complex, nutritious dish that I'd cooked from scratch whilst they were out. Or I'd say that I was taken out for a meal by a producer or an agent who was courting me. No producers or agents in the entire United States of America were courting me. If I were to express this in one sentence, I would say... My behaviour around food was characterised as much by my ineptitude for preparing it as it was for my shame for needing it. By now, in any case, I could scarcely afford to eat. If I needed something expensive like toothpaste or shower gel, I'd purchase it but feel shame for hours afterwards. No such shame haunted me at the bar or the club. No, money on booze was money well spent and I'd prop up the bars, then dance the night away, sweating the shame from my paws onto the dance floors and mattresses of this prurient city. One hopes that shame, wherever it comes from, evaporates, rather than staining the skin of another. But I brought one fungible man after another into my orbit, dazzled him by my own myth, then disappeared into the night, leaving him with nothing to show for it but a shit stain on his sheets and a half-empty glass of water by the bed. I needed money. As I walked around the city, I'd look up to the penthouses that pierced the clouds and imagine somehow drawing down some of that wealth to me. I went to the Lincoln Centre and looked at the donor list engraved on the wall. If just one of those high-tier anonymous donors were to give me 10% of what they give this building, I'd be safe. Surely there must be a way of giving money directly to me rather than the bricks and mortar of these ugly sacred spaces. I cruised up and down the foyer and lurked in the toilets, standing at the urinal with my light grey linen trousers below my buttocks, which revealed a sharp red thong, hoping to attract a patron. I snuck into the ballet to watch the matinee of Jules. My mind wandered during the green one. It astonished me how the choreography had been passed on over time, an entire work of art held in the muscles and memories of those who perform it, and then given to the next generation. This performance was at once fleeting and transient, and yet permanent. It resisted change, and yet it always changed. P equals not P, I thought. The male dancers were exquisite, and I made a mental note of their faces for when I reopened Grinder. Not that I'd stand a chance, but is there anything more attractive than talent? After the ballet, I walked over to Hell's Kitchen for my summit with Marty. I decided not to email him terminating our friendship, and we were meeting to discuss our current conflict. In public, of course. Why deprive the world of our scintillating saga? If there were going to be fireworks, Marty and I fed off the oohs and ahs of the assembled masses. As I trudged along the filthy streets, broke, 
alone and vanishing, I encanted my roll call of the living and dead of New York City. Robert Mapplethorpe, Patti Smith, Larry Kramer, Edmund White, Keith Herring, David Wonorovich, James Baldwin, Walt Whitman, Stephen Sondheim, Nora Ephron, Tony Andrew Holleran, Gore Vidal. Would that one of them, living or dead, visit me and say, Chris, everything is going to be okay. This pain, this hunger, this obsession with making it that is causing you so much harm will soon be over and you will know success, wealth and Lionel's love. You will write your way to riches. But in the meantime, here's $50,000, bitch. Marty was waiting for me in boxers. He'd come prepared with an agenda and a set of notes. Look at us, he said. Two foreskins walk into a bar. And only one leaves, I said. Marty declared that before anything else, we should agree the terms of reference for our conversation. I agreed, and we set to hammering out our parameters. I conceded that I would not talk about Marty cheating on his husband, which was a loss as I was dying to fling something back in his face about it. I already had several zingers prepared from which not even Oscar Wilde himself could recover. For my part, I negotiated to forbid any mention of Robert, although Marty pushed back on that given it was the source of the conflict. An hour had soon passed and we were still negotiating. Marty said, Time for me to go, babes. See you. With that, he hobbled out the bar on his crutches, making eye contact with every patron he passed. When he reached the door, he turned, pointed at me and shouted to the bar, Homosexuals of New York City, may I please have your attention? The man over there is America's next top bottom. The room turned to look at me. When they turned back to Marty seconds later, he had disappeared. The only thing missing was a puff of smoke. There was a smattering of applause for his exit line before the gaze returned to their clucking, and I imagined the smile on Marty's face, the great Majesto, as he walked away from his illusion, ready to meet his fans at stage door. A man sat down opposite me. Want to spend the night on cloud nine inches? He asked. I looked up. He was lean and vigorous, an exclamation point of a man. Yes, please. Listen to me very carefully, he said. I leant forward. I'm going to fuck you very hard for a very long time. My mouth opened. Did you hear me? Yes. I'm going to fucking pound you. A lot of men say they can handle me, but they can't. So when I say I'm going to fuck you very hard and for a very long time, I need to be clear with you that that is my absolute intention. And if you don't think you can manage it, by now, I practically slid off my barstool. You know that moment when you think you can't take it anymore? When you're at your limit and you're just about to ask me to stop? That's when I'm going to turn you over and tell you you're halfway through. He downed his large glass of beer and stood up. No, you're waiting here. He took his empty glass and went into the men's bathroom. I could see his cock straining through his jeans, and whilst you could always rely on me to make an impassioned speech about how I wasn't a size queen, I could tell the advertised nine inches was a reasonable and accurate assertion. I waited for him to return. Would we go to his? Would he fall in love with me? Would he murder me? At least at my funeral, they could say I died doing something I loved. I spent so much time on the apps, my biggest fear was that at my funeral they'd say, his final words were, into? I got you a drink, he said when he returned. He placed a pint glass in front of me. 
It was now full of a yellowy liquid with a white foam spilling over the side of the glass onto his fingers. What is it? Drink it and you'll see. I brought the glass to my lips. I could hear the tiny bubbles of foam bursting. The scent struck the back of my nose. I looked at him dead in the eyes for a prolonged beat, a fermata in our musical score. Then I glugged down his piss in one go, not once breaking his gaze. I slammed the glass onto the table. I can handle you, I said. It turns out I couldn't. Well, I could, but only just. His declaration at the bar was an accurate prophecy. After fucking me on the floor for an hour, he guided me into the bathroom and fucked me against the sink. I looked at myself in the mirror as he fucked me, at once self-conscious and mortified, before a feeling of awesome power and accomplishment took over. After some time, I requested a break. He pulled his cock out of me, slowly, politely, then turned me over, hoisted my legs over his shoulder and perched my buttocks on the sink. You're halfway through, he said. I nodded, let him back in and held on for dear life. After another hour or so, he wanted to play me a song he'd written on his upright piano. I was recovering on the couch with my arms crossed over my chest like I was lying in state. He said, you look like Ava Peron in her casket. He played Don't Cry For Me Argentina when we both sung along. I had dinner plans in Greenpoint with a Texan doctor I'd matched with on OKCupid. I didn't want to leave this man's apartment for the rest of my life, but he informed me his husband would be back soon. Lucky bastard, I thought. I was halfway to Greenpoint on the G train when I remembered I still had this man's semen inside of me. Two deposits, in fact. My phone was having issues with reception, so I wasn't receiving or able to send messages, which meant I couldn't cancel. I resolved to use the bathroom as soon as I got to the restaurant. I'd agreed to this date a few weeks earlier when I wasn't staring down the barrel of financial ruin, so I was reminding myself only to eat half my meal and take the rest home when I spotted Daniel, the Texan doctor, waiting for me outside the restaurant. Without warning, I farted and expelled a large glob of spunk out my asshole. I remembered I was wearing a thong. I touched my light grey linen trousers and felt a wet patch. Howdy, Daniel said. He strode up to me and gave a strong, lingering bear hug, the force of which squeezed out a second glob of semen. Our seats were upstairs. Oh, I'll just pop to the bathroom, I said. They're upstairs too, replied the host. Daniel smiled and signalled for me to take the stairs first. No, 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 after you, I said. Please, you first, Daniel replied. We repeated this back and forth a few times before Daniel said, Chris, I'm a southern gentleman. There is no way I'm going up these stairs ahead of you. And besides, I get to admire that cute butt of yours, which you know is what I want for my dessert. All I had on were trousers and a t-shirt, and that useless red thong. I strategized quickly. Smiling at Daniel, I then leapt up the stairs three at a time. As I ascended, I put my arms behind my back and did a Bob Fosse wavy dance move with them, the hope being it would distract from the spunk stain leaking through my linen trousers. The force of my stride spewed even more spunk out of me, and this time there was no denying the sound. Bathrooms in New York restaurants are a fucking nightmare for this type of thing. This was a unisex toilet, the frosted glass door of which gave directly onto the restaurant, inches away from a table of innocent diners. The task ahead of me was twofold, dispose, then dry. I lifted the cistern, shoved my soaking wet thong in it, and closed the lid. 
As the hot air from the hand dryer inexplicably spread the stain on my trousers, I started to cry. Finally, after what must have been at least ten minutes, there was a knock on the bathroom door. It was the host. Everything okay? Yes, sorry. Could you tell my date? I'll just be a couple more minutes. Oh, your date left, sir. He didn't even come upstairs. I'm here to see if you still want the table. I found a McDonald's a couple of blocks away. I'd not eaten since the day before, so I ordered a quarter pounder and wandered the streets to find a dark corner where I could eat it away from judging eyes. I found a bench in McCarran Park and I sat down with a squelch. As I raised the burger to my lips, I could see I was trembling, a mixture of hunger and adrenaline, I guessed, but my mouth was watering. I dropped the burger. It slipped from my hands and landed in the dirt. Six pigeons surrounded it before I could rescue it. I kicked them out the way, brushed the dirt off my dinner and restored it to its carton. My phone must have reconnected to the network because it started beeping with a backlog of messages and emails. There was a note from one of the theatres I'd been waiting to hear from. Dear Chris, it's not good news, I'm afraid. I put my phone down on the bench and sat still for a few moments. I slapped myself hard across the face, first with my right hand, then with my left, followed by a third ferocious strike with my right. It was loud enough to stop the whole city in its tracks to turn every head in this disgusting town, but the sound reverberated through the darkness and New York carried on regardless. I picked up my quarter pounder and threw it to the pigeons. Why won't they let me speak? Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar is written and narrated by Chris Thompson, directed by Andrew Falaise, edited and post-production by Christopher Huth. Next time on Two Foreskins Walk Into a Bar, I took my spunk-stained trousers in both hands and then started to whip the poster over and over. Thanks for listening. If you're enjoying, please rate and review wherever you get your podcasts.